Hello, it's Thursday, April the 11th, and welcome to Area 45, the Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Institution Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio, Dr. Amy Ziegert. She's the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at Hoover, a Senior Fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spoley Institute for International Studies, and a professor by courtesy of political science at Stanford University. She's also the co-director and senior fellow at Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation, that's CSAC for short. And that leads us to today's topic, cybersecurity. Dr. Ziegert, great to see you. Thanks for having me, Bill. My pleasure. You come armed today with breaking news. What is it? I do. Well, actually, it's been a, a torrent of breaking news in the past two weeks. So the most recent breaking news is the uh, published publication of the president's executive order on cybersecurity. That's just the fifth major event in the past 14 days. Mm-hmm. Also today, we had the Senate Intelligence Committee hearing on worldwide threats, which had a major focus on cyber. Of course, in the past 48 hours, we've had the firing of the FBI director, James Comey. Before that, we had the French election and the hacking of that election. Uh, and then Facebook actually came out with a pretty groundbreaking report mm-hmm. uh, on uh, its uh, uh, efforts to combat information operations. All of these things in the past 14 days. And you didn't mention the North Korean missile that may or may not have been hacked. You didn't mention the uh, blackouts in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and York, which you've since said were not cyber-related, but people pointed to. Before we get into this and more, let me ask you a very simple, don't take it as an insulting question. How does one define cybersecurity? Is cybersecurity simply me making sure my computer is not getting hacked? Is cybersecurity the Pentagon worrying about getting hacked? Is cybersecurity national security, individuals' financial security, or as I imagine, all of the above? It's actually a really great and complicated question. Cyber means many things to many people. In fact, computer scientists hate the word cyber. It's a made-up word, and it's not something in the field that they actually think is very useful. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges of cyber policy is that both the word cyber and attack are very problematic concepts. So the short answer to your question is cyber seems to encompass anything that goes on a digital network or computer system, simply put. But if we think about how we develop cyber policy, I say it's often akin to lumping all sorts of disparate threats together. Anything that happens over a computer network, whether it's the theft of your credit card, which happens to us all too often, Mm -hmm. or whether it's an information attack or a disabling attack on a weapon system of the United States government. That's akin to saying we have this new threat called vehicle-borne threats. And we need to combat vehicle-borne threats. And that encompasses everything from carjacking um, to IED and uh, improvised explosive devices, terrorist attacks uh, using trucks, uh, and and anything in between. It doesn't make analytic sense. And yet that's exactly what we've done with cyber. This sounds like the policy equivalent of drinking from a fire hydrant. (laughs) Yes, it is. Okay, preparing for this, I spent 17 very delightful, fascinating minutes watching you, Dr. Amy Ziegert, on YouTube giving a TED Talk a couple of years ago. Well done, by the way. I enjoyed it very Thank much. Thank you. I walked away learning this from the TED Talk. In the speech, you laid out five ways in which cyber threats differ from past threats. And I'm going to give you each one, and I want you to explain them. Point number one, you said the U.S. is both the most powerful presence in cyberspace and yet the most vulnerable. So that's still true today. Um, And the reason I said the U.S. is the most powerful and the most vulnerable is it's pretty clear that we have the most sophisticated offensive cyber capabilities of any nation 
uh, or non-state actor for that matter in the world. Mm -hmm. But we're also the most digitally connected country in the world. Right. We rely on digital networks for everything. Think about turning on um, your thermostat from afar or whether uh, you're using Google Maps to navigate. Uh, the financial system, our societal interactions, uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, how we keep up with people, and, uh, and, and our military systems. Everything we do is digitally connected. Now, that's not true of many countries that we consider adversaries. So, for example, when uh, the North Korean government uh, perpetrated the attack on Sony, it became a national security incident for the United States. This was after the release of the film, uh, the interview, right, where Correct. Uh, which, which, which Kim Jong Un, not to give away the film, does not come across very well, and so if, after the film comes out, Sony gets hacked. So the so the the hackers actually uh, broke into the Sony systems to try to prevent the film from getting released in the first place. Right. So it was kind of an extortion situation, but they also revealed uh, and released very embarrassing data, mm -hmm. uh, including emails that led to the resignation of the Sony studio chief. Uh, they forced Sony off the grid. They destroyed hundreds and hundreds of servers and computers that were turned literally into bricks. So right. information was destroyed. Trade secrets revealed. It was a pretty damaging attack for Sony, but it became an American national security incident. Fast forward when Sony's, when North Korea's internet went down and what many think was a retaliatory attack by the United States, mm -hmm. not a lot was shut down because North Korea has a grand total of 28 websites in the entire country. So we are uniquely powerful and uniquely vulnerable compared to some of our adversaries. You're telling me if you go to something .nk, you're not going to find much on Won't that. find much, no. Okay. So point number one is most powerful presence of cyberspace. Yes, the most vulnerable. Point number two, you said in cyberspace, the U.S. government cannot go it alone. That is becoming more and more apparent in the aftermath of the 2016 election and now uh, efforts to influence elections in Europe. Mm -hmm. When we typically think of the role of government, we think of when we have a security challenge, we think that's particularly in the government's lane. So you have uh, concerns about uh, burglary in your neighborhood. You call the police. And political scientists like to say, and I'll try not to be too political science-y, but uh, that the government has a legitimate monopoly uh, uh, role in the use of force, right? It's legitimate right. and it's a monopoly provider of force. So the police have a legitimate need and, and to use force. Uh, the same is true if we're worried about security of our country. We bolster the military. We in increase Pentagon spending. But that's not true in cyber because 85% of our critical infrastructure, things like financial system, power, dams, these uh, capabilities are owned and operated by the private sector. So even if we wanted the government to protect us more in cybersecurity, the government is unable to do that by itself. Okay, point number three, you said in cyberspace, Main Street USA, the avenue of the internet running through the United States is the word you used, a very Bernie Sanders-like word, huge. <laughs> Without the why, but nonetheless, you called it huge. Exactly. So this was a, the, the, the idea, If you, it's hard for, for most of us to really conceptualize what cyberspace is like. Because it's virtual, it's not something tangible or physical. Right. And as I say in the talk, one former military officer like in cyberspace to me this way. He said, imagine that you've got a street that goes through the best and the worst parts of town all at the same time. And people are doing everything in cyberspace that they do in the real world, in the physical world. They're visiting friends. They're buying things for themselves. They're going shopping. Uh, they're going to the movies. But all sorts of bad things are also happening in this world that happen in the physical world. 
drugs are getting sold, there's pornography, there's crime. And the problem in cyberspace is that the best and worst parts of town can't be uh, separated. There are no walls, no fences, no locks. And so the good guys and the bad guys are all connected and we can't protect ourselves and we can't live in gated communities in cyberspace like we can in the real world. And that's what makes it so problematic. I'll add that one of the reasons why this neighborhood is, uh, the good and bad neighborhoods are all together is that the internet was of course designed to be open. It was designed originally for just a handful of researchers, some of whom were at Stanford, to share their research with each other. Only now, 40% of the world is on the internet, not just a handful of academic researchers who exactly. already knew each other and trusted each other. Exactly. Point number four you raised, victims may not know their victims until post facto. So the number that I like to talk about when I give uh, talks to um, CEOs and, and uh, directors on boards and investors is 205. 205. 205 days is the median period of time between when a breach occurs and when you know about it. So if you think your organization hasn't been hacked recently, you just don't know about it yet. The better part of seven months until you know you've been hacked. Yes, that's the median, right? The re it could be higher, it could be lower. Why so long? Because uh, cyber actors have a variety of ways to hide what they do because uh, it takes a lot of vigilance to figure out when we've been breached, uh, and because most of us actually prefer efficiency over security. And so you might get a warning. Sometimes you can get these warnings from uh, Google that says, you know, we have reason to believe your account may have been compromised. Well, many people ignore that at first because it seems like their computer's functioning just fine. Or you might think that's actually a scam to get me to get into that link to actually get my get my information. Right. You're right. So very good point. Fifth and final point, you we talked about warning times before attacks, and you talked about response time afterwards. So the uh, the example I like to give is um, uh, the, the, the reason why this is important, let me take a step back, is that you can't deter if you can't attribute. And you have to attribute quickly. You have to figure out who the culprit is. Um, in order to uh, be able to uh, credibly threaten a retaliatory strike. Right. So if the time between a breach and your response is a long period of time, that can be really problematic from a deterrent standpoint. So the classic example I give is I have three kids. And if I walk down to the kitchen and I say, the kitchen's a mess. I know one of you is responsible for this mess. It's going to take me six months to figure out which one of you is responsible, but when I do, you're going to be sorry, right? Nobody would believe that is a credible threat of retaliation because the time between discovery and attribution is too long. And so this is a newer challenge in cybersecurity that we talk about deterrence, but it's not just, deterrence is much harder than most people believe it is. All right, so let's talk now about what uh, Donald Trump, what the Trump administration is doing and what it should be doing. You and Michael McFall, your, your colleague here at, at Hoover, you wrote a piece in the Washington Post. Catchy headline, America needs to play both the short game and long game in cybersecurity. So Mike, of course, a Russia expert. I am not a Russia expert. I focus more on, on this side of the cyber equation. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about a couple of things. The first is, and actually the easier piece, is to shore up our election systems so that they're more resilient. So, you know, I'm really mindful of the fact that the so many of the best solutions to tech problems uh, are not tech solutions. So, for example, the Navy uh, has started training its cadets how to navigate with sextants again, just in case GPS systems go down. Facebook has, as its ultimate redundancy, paper manuals to restart their data centers if all of their data centers go down. So right. sometimes the best solutions to technical challenges are non-technical, redundant backup systems. Um, and so 
the the thinking behind sort of bolstering our uh, election systems, the vote tallying, if, uh, if you will, is that we just need auditable paper-based ballots, right? So right. there are a number of different states, including several battleground states like Pennsylvania and Florida, that have some online voting, but you can't actually have an auditable paper ballot trail to figure out if the electoral results are accurate or not. Right. That seems like a pretty easy solution to a technical problem, but we don't have it yet. So that's the kind of immediate, how do we keep uh, confidence that the results of, a, of an election are the results that, that they should be. But longer term, we have to think about how to deal with a whole new class of threats that really have to do with information operations. So there's been a lot of focus on the 2016 election about the hacking piece of it, right. like breaking into the DNC and releasing information. That's, that's actually not the most serious part. The most serious part of Russia's uh, information operations is a massive effort to change the psychology of the American electorate, to influence what's real and what's not. Uh, and this is kind of a classic deception operation, only it's at cyber speed and scale. This is the fake news component to the election. Right. And fake news means different things to different people. Right. So I want right. to be careful about how I how I talk about fake news. You're not, you're not talking media bias. You're talking about just taking false stories generated from a foreign country and dropping them into the mainstream of American media and selling them as legitimate news. And not even just selling them as legitimate news. So it is taking false stories that right. are not true in fact. It's not that it's a little bit biased or a little bit off, but absolutely knowingly, deliberately false. And not just dropping them into the mainstream media, but actually creating trolls, right? Armies of trolls. Some of them are humans. Some of them are automated to drum up likes or to drum up content, to bombard uh, social media outlets with similar views because research shows that the right. more that people see how prevalent something is, the more they believe it. It's all part of this campaign. So it's not just drop it and see what happens. It right. is a deliberate strategy to amplify the effect of the false information. Do you have such an example? So there's there are a number of uh, specific examples. Companies don't like to talk about them very much, uh, but perhaps one of the most uh, frequently cited one is the false story that um, Pope Francis endorsed um, uh, Donald Trump for president. Which and by the way, some of the motives for amplifying fake news come from nation states, and a lot of them come from just scammers who want to get money with clickbait, as you see it on the internet. And so one of the things that happened with a lot of the false news stories. Uh, in, that, in this particular campaign is that it turns out that Trump supporters were more likely to like them and pass them on than Clinton supporters. Right. So the financial scam artists made more money doing it. It's not that they targeted one group or another. It's that it happened to be more financially profitable. So where do, you, where do you drop that story? When you first create that story, where do you drop it? Do you drop it inside something like a Free Republic or a Lucian.com where conservatives go to look at collective news? Or do you try to drop it within the likes of the Washington Post or the New York Times? Or how, how do you get it into the bloodstream? So a lot of this, so uh, part of this is that there are Russian propaganda organizations like Russia Today, RT, RT and Sputnik, right? right? And so they, that's what they do is they, they you know, produce this content. Mm -hmm. But another way of doing it is actually more insidious, which is that it could be an individual that says something that looks like it's, it's an authentic account, but right. it's actually not an authentic account. Uh, and then there are hundreds or thousands of people that like whatever that post is, and they're not authentic accounts either. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Right. So um, Facebook in, a, in the report that that came out on April 27th, um, which is a pretty amazing report, actually talks about how they took down 30,000 inauthentic accounts in one case. So one of the ways that some of these companies are trying to combat this problem is actually finding the fake accounts and right. getting rid of them. Okay, 30,000 accounts. I mean, how, how does Facebook have the time and the manpower to do that? They have a very large team, number mm-hmm. one. Right. Um, they also have a way of, uh, you know, th- they can automate some of the suspicious activities so they can identify what's, uh, what seems not right. to be authentic. But, it's, but you've identified a really important problem, which is you can imagine the scale of this is only going to get bigger. Uh, yeah, again, it's drinking out of the fire hydrant. Yes. Trying to keep up. Okay, back to the Trump administration. You came in here with your... Neville Chamberlain offering peace in our time with your executive order. Uh, if there is an executive order, if there is a dictate on the war on against ISIS, the war on terror, I have a pretty good idea that the Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, has had a role in it. H.R. McMaster, the head of the NSC, has a role in it. Who is authoring an executive order on cybersecurity? What government agency or agencies, plural, are doing the drafting? Uh, well, you get at a very difficult problem here, which is that who's in charge when it comes to cybersecurity? I want to take you down a road of organizations, not just to fight a war. You have to have an organization for how to fight the war. You have a Department of Defense during the Cold War and the War on Terror. But in terms of cybersecurity, how many agencies, plural, have a role in this? I would say every agency in the United States government has some kind of role, both because they are nodes of vulnerability and because they are nodes of responsibility with cybersecurity. Somebody has to be the lead dog. Who's who's the lead dog? Well, it looks like in this executive order, the lead dog, at least in parts of this, is the Department of Homeland Security. There is no one lead dog. The answer is it depends, Mm -hmm. right? So the Pentagon is responsible for protecting .mil. Right. Um, and some responsibility for .gov. Mm-hmm. Who's responsible for protecting .com? Well, arguably DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, is an important player there. Mm-hmm. So is the FBI. Mm-hmm. But by the way, who has the best capabilities to detect whether there are serious breaches in the .com world? The National Security Agency. So I can, I can tell you when I talk to people in the private sector, including major financial institutions and others, they, one of the things I hear is, I don't even know who to call. Mm-hmm. because the authorities are not clear, mm-hmm. uh, because it's a pretty complicated terrain. It's not that people are stupid and haven't realized that they need to figure this out. It's that it's a really complicated problem to solve. Okay. Speaking of cyber, I think we're on a cloud here because you just asked, you just got into my next question, which was if you wanted to pick up the phone and call somebody in the 202 area code and offer advice on what to do, who do you call? It depends. It depends. Uh, it depends. Good, good political answer. <laughs> but no, practically, where, where would you start? Well, my, my area of greatest concern mm-hmm. is cyber incidents that rise to the level of a national security threat. Right. So there are many people that are worried about privacy and, and the protection of consumer information. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my world, uh, I would probably pick up the phone and call Jim Mattis first because I'm particularly worried about what are the authorities that the military has to use offensive cyber weapons and right. what are the authorities they have to protect our weapon systems and personnel from cyber intrusions, mm-hmm. including intelligence operations. Okay. We're still in the cloud right now. Is there such a thing as a cyber red line? There is not. There is um, not. And that's something the Pentagon's been grappling with for a long time, too. Um, you may recall when Secretary of Defense Ash Carter came to Stanford a couple years ago, he unveiled the Pentagon cyber strategy. Mm-hmm. And that was a big step forward. And one of the prime areas that they were focusing on is what's the threshold? above which we are, we consider this an act of national significance. And when he was here, I asked him the question, so how do we know it when we see it? 
We don't have a good answer for that question yet. If you remember, the Sony hack was called an act of war by Senator McCain and an act of cyber vandalism by President Obama. And part of it, again, part of it is that different conceptions of what cyber is, but a lot of it is we don't know it when we see it. Mm -hmm. And the landscape is evolving so fast that much of these cyber activities are occurring clearly below the threshold of war, but that doesn't mean they're not significant. So I'll give you one concrete example. The OPM breach, more than 20 million records of the Office of Personal uh, Personal Management were uh, uh, obtained, presumably by the Chinese government. These are uh, security clearance uh, files for the most uh, uh, sensitive positions in the United States government. Now, this was the counterintelligence breach of a lifetime. It is a nightmare. It's not talked about as much as the uh, election hacking. Mm -hmm. But over the long term could be devastating for American national security because, as you know, these these forms have, and I had to fill out one of these recently, you have to not only say everything about your own history and your own family, but any foreigner with whom you've been in contact, anybody that's close to you. So now you've basically given, uh, presumably, the Chinese government a whole host of information of possible people that can be used to exploit senior most people in the United States government. Mm-hmm. And that's the long game that the Chinese are playing. Okay, so if we're going to talk about cyber red lines, then we have to go to the next obvious point, which is the idea of cyber counterattacks, pound for pound, measure for measure. I know there's a big debate about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do not believe that we live in a world where we can respond within a single domain. If you do this to me, I'll do that to you. Right. We have to think much more creatively that if we want to have any kind of hope at a deterrence footprint, we have to start with the premise of understanding what do you value most and how can I hold that at risk? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, a, in the cyber domain, the nuclear domain, a conventional domain, or something personal, right? right? What do you as an individual leader value and how can I hold that at risk to change your behavior? So we have to start, I think, from the premise that it can't be a tit-for-tat world only in cyberspace. That's never going to work. Mm-hmm. Okay, cyber resistance and cyber resilience. How do I resist cyber attacks other than signing up for endless software security programs? Yeah, the, the endless software security programs give you the illusion of security, but not the reality it's of kinda security. It's like, kind of like getting a bomb shelter in the Cold War, I think. It sounds like a good idea, but it's really not going to do so, much at the end of the day. So there's, there's some, I don't want to be all doom and gloom. There is some sure. silver lining here, which is about 75% of all breaches or attacks occur through known vulnerabilities that have known fixes, mm-hmm. right? So this is a hygiene problem. If you click on the patch, and we all avoid doing it because our computers seem to run just fine, but if you yes. click on that patch on Tuesday that Microsoft sends to you, you will be better protected. You know, the, the cyber folks talk about how Patch Tuesday is immediately followed by Exploit Wednesday by cyber bad guys. <laughs> so you need to keep your patches updated. Um, the heart, It's like, remember back in the day, they had this thing called the club, which you would put on your car steering wheel to try to make it a little bit harder for a car thief to steal Absolutely. your car? And then thieves figured out you could spray on it and shatter it. And so it's always... You know, it's called spy versus spy. There's always always a way to work around the security that you put in place. That's true in the physical world. It's true in the cyber world. So the question is, how can you make it a little bit harder so that at least Mm -hmm. they don't attack you? Right. Right. And so one answer is click on your updates. The second is use multi-factor authentication. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw recently there was a report that showed um, 
that members of the U.S. government understand they need two-factor authentication. And two, for those of you who don't know, two-factor is you have a, not, not just a password. You have your password, and then you have some other factor that is something that you have, not something you know. So typically, so at Stanford, when you log into the system, uh, you have a password, and then you get a text message on your phone. Verification that's, code. That's right. pretty good. It's not as good as having a chip, for example. Mm -hmm. So members of uh, staff and Congress um, have... Uh, a badge that looks like it has a chip on it, which would be a second factor for two-factor authentication, but it's not actually a chip. It's a picture of one. So they don't really have two-factor authentication, <laughs> even members of a congressional staff. Why do they have a picture of a chip if it's not an actual chip? I honestly don't know. I, I, do, I couldn't tell you the answer. You can't make this stuff up. You really can't. Okay. Uh, I mentioned the Cold War. Dwight Eisenhower coined a phrase of the Cold War, the military-industrial complex. And for the 45 years that we fought the Cold War, there's a very clear relationship between the military and the private sector in terms of technology development, in terms of creating newer, fancier weapons to stave off the Soviets. What is the military-industrial complex like in the cyber war? It's really different today. If we think about the top tech companies in the United States, they're international companies, right, to give right. you some idea. So Apple, two-thirds of Apple's customers or overseas. That's not to say that they don't have American national security interests at heart. Mm -hmm. It is to say that there are conflicting interests with their shareholders. Right. And so there isn't the same kind of perfect alignment that you would have in the old days of defense contractors where all their shareholders were focused on the same things as the United States government. Today, it's a more complicated picture. And we see this in the encryption debates, for example, between Apple and the FBI, uh, between essentially most tech companies and the US government, where uh, many in the national security side want to have back doors into products, not all, but many do, uh, and tech companies are vehemently resisting this, arguing, I think pretty persuasively, I believe, that uh, a backdoor for one is a backdoor for many. Right. So it's a very different world today. And I would say also that the, the, the second sort of major contrast today is that defense contractors are some of the most uh, high-profile victims, some of the highest targeted victims of cyber breaches. There's a reason that the Chinese have an airplane that looks a lot like the F-35. Yeah, usually about a year after the F-35 comes out, they have a remarkably similar model. Right. They've hacked us. All right, the military academic complex, again in the Cold War, universities like Stanford and others doing research on military technology, aerospace, and so forth. What is the military academic relationship in the cyber age? So I'd say the military academic relationship in the cyber age is very good uh, because we're in a new era where we have a lot more questions than we have answers. Mm -hmm. The challenge in cyber that we didn't have back at the dawn of the Cold War is when we think about the creation of deterrence theory, for example, with nuclear weapons, it was physicists and social scientists coming together with folks in the government to come up with the fundamental ideas that kept the Cold War cold with ideas like mutual assured destruction. Right. But in cyberspace, it's much more difficult to get the work across disciplines because the ideas have to come from so many different areas. So cyber challenges are not just about zeros and ones. They're not just technological challenges. They're not just political challenges. They're not just legal challenges. They're not just economic challenges. And there is no ready field that pulls it all together. So physicists really took the lead in working with social scientists to come up with these ideas, but we haven't seen the same kind of interdisciplinary coming together on the cyber side. It's a work in progress. And I will say here at Stanford, we're working really hard uh, to pull those different areas together. So Hoover and CSAC have been collaborating for several years now, particularly and working with the United States Cyber Command on exactly this issue. And who are a few of the other players? 
You mean academically? Yeah, besides Stanford and Hoover. Well, I would, of course, say that we're in a field of one. Yes. <laughs> but uh, the Belfer Center at, the, at Harvard, mm -hmm. um, the Berkman Center at Harvard Law School are also working on this. MIT, uh, right. Berkeley are sort of the big players in this space as well. Okay, and I'm going to go back to what I talked about earlier. How is government going to approach this as an orderly sort? I'm not an advocate for more government, or dare I say, do we need a cyber czar, or do we, do we need to create yet another department to be in charge of cybersecurity? But how are you going to get this in a more tapered, orderly fashion in Washington? It's a huge challenge, and I think usually what you see is when in doubt, create a new organization. And right. when the challenge is coordination, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And we saw this with intelligence after 9-11, right? Before 9-11, we had about a dozen federal intelligence agencies. Now we have 17 right. So and to solve the coordination problems before 9-11. So I'm naturally wary of creating new organizations to deal with coordination-centric uh, challenges. I think the... In reality, we know in politics, you have to get buy-in from the top. Right. So if you really want to have a node of engagement to make big changes in cyber policy, it has to start with the White House. Mm -hmm. So the release today of the executive order is a big step forward in the right direction. Um, the White House, the National Security Council staff has some very serious and sensible folks thinking about cyber policy challenges, and the executive order reflects that. Mm -hmm. And a final point on this front, in the Cold War, manpower, woman power, a very simple proposition. The United States government would... Draft, ask, we had a draft for a while, and then we had a volunteer armed forces. The government would go and look for bright people in universities, either to join the officer corps or to join the CIA. How does manpower work in the cyber age? Is the United States government going to go track down the nerds in the Stanford Engineering Department? or Where, where, do, where do you find the bright people to fight this war? So manpower is one of the most serious challenges that the government confronts in, in cyberspace. That's true not just for the U.S. government, it's true across industry. We have a dramatic shortage of talent uh, when it comes to engineers, computer scientists, uh, to be able to work uh, in this field. And government faces a second problem, which is that the pay is not nearly as good as other opportunities in the private sector. So uh, Admiral Rogers, the director of uh, uh, the National Security Agency and commander of U.S. Cyber Command came to Stanford. It was one of the first universities he visited when he became uh, director and uh, Cyber Command commander. And one of the reasons he came is he wanted to make a recruiting pitch to undergraduates. We opened it up to students. He offered to answer questions. This is after Edward Snowden, so it was a pretty interesting time to be an NSA director coming to a university campus. And he made the pitch that he said, you know, if you, if you want to change the world, you come work for government. If you want to make money, then you can go into Silicon Valley and go into industry. And I, and I pulled his staff aside. I said, I don't think that's really going to be a clarion call no. to this generation because they think they can change the world faster, right. better, bigger, working outside the government than working inside the government. And that's the challenge that the government confronts. I'll share one other anecdote with you, Bill, which is that... Uh, as you may know, the National Security Agency offers fellowships to really promising high school students in math, science, and engineering, where they'll pay for a, a large part of your college expenses. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like ROTC for uh, the NSA, but you have to you have to uh, serve in the government afterwards. I know of two Stanford undergraduates that received this prestigious award, mm -hmm. and by the time they graduated, they decided they would rather pay the NSA back all the money for their Stanford education than work in the government. It's not to say that they weren't service-minded, it's that they felt like they could do more outside of government than inside government. Mm -hmm. That's the challenge that we confront, and it's a big one. Okay, we talked about more government. Now do we need more money? Is the United States academic infrastructure up to the task here? We are not up to the task. When we think about, um, I always say the, the only organization that moves more slowly than government is the academy. 
Okay. Right? So, um, what do we do? So, what we really need to be doing is generating more opportunities for students to be majoring in engineering. And I would say we need to be developing more well rounded engineers that understand and are concerned about international security challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, so, here at Stanford, one of the things that I've been working on is outreach to the engineering side of campus. So, that I don't want anyone graduating from this university without an understanding of the world in which we live and the importance of contributing to the security of the country. And so uh, we've been recruiting folks in computer science and other disciplines to take international security courses. Is this more complicated given the guy in the White House? It's in some ways... Because you're going to have to navigate, work for your country, but maybe you're not working for Donald Trump, you're working for the United States. And will college students, will they, will they understand that difference? Well, what I found is that I think there's been an increasing awareness in the importance of what they do as a result of the election. As you mm-hmm. can imagine, most university campuses are not exactly Trump strongholds. No, no, no. <laughs> so, so I will say the, the yeah, what, what I found is much more interest among young people about how can they contribute to society. Right. Yes, there's a wariness about this particular administration. And there are some, you know, students are very thoughtful if you actually talk to them about separating their personal views from their commitment to the country. Mm-hmm. So what is your personal pitch to the student? Just give me, give me your 30-second, one-minute pitch to a student on why you need to step up and do this. Uh, It depends on the student, but I'd say, you know, these are the most challenging times that we faced in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. that you were admitted, you're among the best and brightest in this nation, that we owe it to not only ourselves, but to our children and their children to try to make the world a safer place, however you can. Yeah, good pitch. (laughs) All right, you and Michael McFall wrote the Washington Post op-ed back in December. We are right now on day, I think, 112 or 113 of the Trump administration, not on my calendar in front of me. But you have an executive order to look at. Are you pleased with the progress? What are they not doing right now that needs to be done? So the executive order that just came out today looks like it's very much a continuation in a good way of some of the earlier efforts of uh, previous administrations. So we're seeing a maturation of approaches in cyber policy. So as any good executive order in the beginning of an administration does, it asks for a lot of information, sort of a review as a way to get people on the same page to understand where the gaps are, where the priorities are. So you see a number of calls for reports within certain periods of time, 90 days, 60 days, 180 days, to better understand what the risk uh, profile looks like for cybersecurity across the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. That's all a very good idea. Um, There are some interesting parts of the executive order that we'll have to see how they play out. Jared Kushner is uh, running a new office in the White House called the Office of American Innovation, which apparently will play an outsized role in IT modernization across the executive branch. I wish him well with that. (laughs) (laughs) That's going to keep him busy for the next four years. So how the coordination piece works between his office Uh, the cyber office in the NSC and the rest of the United States government, I think those equities uh, are still a work in progress, judging from what I can see uh, of this executive order. But in general, I think it's, um, it's a sensible executive order. It doesn't it doesn't offer any magic solutions to these problems because there aren't, but it offers a blue, a, sort of a, a roadmap about how to get better information, better coordination, better buy-in about what we need to do moving forward. Okay, let's say that you and I reconvene a year from now in this studio and we're talking about the same topic. 
Tell me what progress looks like a year from now. That's a great question. I'd say progress looks like not just admiring the problems of cybersecurity in the government, but actually making some headway into solving them. So at a bare, at a bare minimum, upgrading the basic cybersecurity of critical agencies like the Office of Personnel Management, mm-hmm. um, which didn't even have the basic antivirus software in operation when it was breached, for example. So if they do that, then Professor Ziegert gives them a C. That's a passing grade. I'm a pretty tough grader. I don't know that that'd be a passing. It'd be a barely D- passing grade. D- D Maybe plus? a D plus. <laughs> okay. What do they have to do to get a C? So to get a C, then I'd want to see dramatic improvements in cyber protection for the most important agencies of the U.S. government. I'd also want to better understand, and the executive order provides for that, how vulnerable are various elements of our defense establishment, not just organizations, but weapon systems mm-hmm. to potential compromise by cyber attack? This is the most uh, powerful asymmetric threat that we face, right? We, if you can imagine if our communication systems go down or if we're not sure whether the F-35 is going to function as we think it will, right. or if missiles can be turned in a different direction on ourselves, or we're not even sure whether they could, that could create some profound problems for our military readiness and our ability to fight and and win wars. So that to me would be very, very high on the list. Uh, And then to get a a really good grade. Let's let's, let's move up to a B now. Okay. Let's do yeoman's work. Let's get a B. To get a B, I'd want to have a better understanding of uh, how, if at all, deterrence might work in the cyber universe. There's been a lot of talk about deterrence, but nothing that really lays out specifically what are the requirements for an effective deterrent. It's it's an easy throwaway line in a campaign, and and candidates in all parties do it, talking about how we need to have stronger deterrence. What does that look like in reality? Mm -hmm. like to see progress on that. Okay, you said you're a tough grader, so you throw around nickels like hubcaps. What does it take to get an A from Dr. Ziegert? Oh, boy. What it takes to get an A would be a uh, something that we probably wouldn't hear about, and you and I wouldn't be talking about a year from now, which would be a strategic intelligence plan, not only to counter cyber-enabled intelligence, uh, I would say information warfare, but when appropriate to be able to effectively wage information warfare on the offensive side. And I say when appropriate because we have to decide as a society and as a government if where we draw the line with these kinds of operations. But we need to think through how we can better defend ourselves from information warfare in the future and what, if any, role that's going to play as we think about the offensive side, whether it's counterterrorism or a state-based threat. So based from what you've seen on this administration so far, what, what are you braced for? Well, my biggest concern right now is the firing of the FBI director. Um, When we talk about it, and it's related to cybersecurity, Uh, the FBI plays a really important role not only in this investigation, but in the domestic elements of cybersecurity. And now we're going to be embroiled in months and months of continuing uh, conflict over uh, what's going to happen at the FBI. So I'm very concerned about the opportunity cost that this is going to impose on the FBI. Now there's going to be all this time spent on um, what's going to happen with the future of the investigation when the FBI has enough on its plate with counterterrorism, counterintelligence, and cybersecurity. So I'm really concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm particularly concerned about um, the precedent of firing uh, the, the FBI director. Um, uh, the only FBI director that's been fired, as you probably know, was William Sessions, and that was a 161-page uh, report about his 
ethics violations, which are pretty astounding. I actually took a look at that report yesterday to read what, in fact, he did. Yes. Um, it's actually pretty good reading for a government report, <laughs> but not in a good way. So I'm really worried about that with respect to our intelligence community and our and our cyber capabilities. So that's, the in the near term, figuring out how to move forward uh, with the Bureau, getting a director that has the, um, the trust inside the building, inside uh, FBI headquarters, as well as across the country is job number one for this president. I don't know if you uh, spent time on the Washington Post website looking at a little thing they have called the Jobs Bank, which is they're keeping track of Trump appointees. And I don't know if you want to pick up the family and move somewhere, but it's a good time to be an ambassador. The bank is open on that. You're staggered how many jobs are available. But is there anything sitting in the federal government right now germane to cybersecurity that should have been filled by now that needs to be filled like tomorrow? Well, the FBI director would be Aside would be pretty FBI important. Director. Correct. Um, I'm sure there are uh, mm -hmm. the senior most levels. I think we're in pretty good shape, and and that is to say, even though these appointments aren't filled, doesn't mean there isn't anyone doing the job. Right. Right. So I think key cyber positions have been filled. One question is, what's going to be the future of U.S. Cyber Command? Is it going to split? Uh, from strategic command? Is it going to split from the National Security Agency? So there may be an opportunity to fill some new positions there in the future uh, if, if this split goes as expected within the next year. So I'm going to look very closely at that. Okay. And while we focused mainly on the Trump administration, what bright minds in Congress do you turn to? Who, who in Congress gets this? I think there are several members of Congress that get this. Senator McCain was at Hoover uh, just last year doing a deep dive on, on cybersecurity. He's very seized with the issue. As you can imagine, the overlap between armed services and cybersecurity issues is very high. Right. Um, we also see leaders on both sides of the aisle in the intelligence committees on the Senate and the House side that are very interested and serious about cybersecurity. I will say it's it's um, one of those issues where we find it really isn't a partisan issue mm -hmm. more than just about any issue in American politics today. It remains a nonpartisan issue, uh, with the exception of the election hacking, right, which right. seems to be more partisan by the day. But what we have here at Hoover is, you know, every uh, every other year we host a cyber boot camp for senior congressional staff, mm -hmm. and we design it to be nonpartisan. We draw from both the House and Senate. We have Democrats and Republicans on all the relevant cyber oversight committees. Uh, and we now have a waiting list for the cyber boot camp because there is a hunger for knowledge of what, how can we think about cyber challenges, what should we do about cyber challenges. Right. And I will tell you in these, in these boot camps, uh, the conversations are candid, they're off the record, we don't have press, and they're very thoughtful and they're not at all partisan. And so uh, I take hope in the fact that at the, one of the greatest challenges to our country is also the least politicized challenge to our country. Okay, your time is short, and I've asked you a lot of questions. Is there anything painfully obvious that I failed to ask you in the last 40 minutes? I think you've hit on all the really important questions. I wish we had more. I wish I, a year from now I have answers for you more than just more questions. Okay, let's call it a date. We'll do this a year from now. Sounds good. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We can use your help. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. And while you're surfing around there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows, including Dr. Amy Ziegert, straight to your inbox every business day. You can find the Hoover Institution on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at HooverInst. That's at Hoover, I-N-S-T. Amy Ziegert is also on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at Amy Ziegert. You spell that A-M-Y-Z-E-G-A-R-T. 
You can also follow Stanford Center for Security and Cooperation, International Security and Cooperation on Twitter. CSAC's Twitter handle is at Stanford CSAC, which is at Stanford C-I-S-A-C. Anything else I need to plug? I think you got it all. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.